This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have just learned that Toronto is projecting a $93 million shortfall due to lost revenue and added costs because of COVID. And it's reasonable to assume that other municipalities are facing the same thing. I'd like to welcome Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Hello. Hi, Libby. Always great to be on your show. Well, thank you. And I have to apologize for going a little off topic uh, uh, at the top here, but I don't know if you had a chance to listen to part of our last conversation was about uh, the latest challenge to Aaron O'Toole. And I have to tell you, it reminds me that when you were running for the leadership, the perception was that you were a social conservative. And when you won the leadership, you tacked to the center and there was uh, much the same kind of angst that he's fading, facing. Uh, uh, you know, I know you're nonpartisan as the mayor, but, but what do you make of it? Well, I, I don't think the parallels will be uh, that similar uh, during the provincial PC leadership. But one of the reasons that I was successful is the party had 10,000 party members at the time, and we signed up 45,000 members really across diverse communities in, in in Ontario. And so that was, I think, the biggest reason for the success and, and the surprising result in Ontario PC leadership. I, I do try to stay away from partisan politics now as I have to work uh, with all political parties as, as mayor of Brampton. But I did follow um, the, the the federal election. And um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of conservatives who are disappointed, but you know, I also believe at the same time uh, that the party was behind on the times and some of the issues that Aaron um, evolved the party on, from uh, climate change to uh, defending the rights of the LGBTQ2 community. And, uh, you know, some of those decisions, some of those policy pronouncements by Mr. O'Toole caused derision by some in the party. Um, you look at the debate on conversion therapy. Libby, I can't believe they even had a debate on conversion therapy. I can't believe that there was a part of the party that still thought... Uh, um, you can change someone's sexual orientation. You know, I, I, frankly, I find that offensive. But <laughs> nonetheless, I'm happy to be in municipal politics and away from uh, some of those uh, uh, divisions. Uh, and do you think that uh, this kind of uh, internal, um, uh, you know, internal turmoil is it's that's just the way it's going to be because of the, this divide? Well, because I'm st- staying away from partisan politics, uh, I'm not the best person to uh, uh, provide commentary on what's happening right now in in, in the Conservative Party. Uh, um, but uh, you know, I, um, I, I just like you, I, I follow it uh, uh, from afar. Okay, I tried. Uh, so, Mayor Brown. Um, what kind of extra costs is Brampton facing because of, uh, you know, enforcement of vaccine passports and, and other measures? Yeah, so I raised this issue at my weekly uh, press conference. Part out of, out of frustration, when the provincial government announced their COVID uh, certification program, they said that if there was problems with compliance to call the local police or bylaw. Well, our local police is already inundated with with, with work. Frankly, we had two shootings last night in, in Brampton. Um, right now, we already have to prioritize and tier um, uh, police calls. And so, just like in most municipalities, police don't have the resources right now to respond to minor offenses. And so, if there's a car theft or uh, a minor burglary, they generally say report it to insurance because they're trying to um, manage the, the lack of, of, of human resources in, in policing. So I know our local police have said they don't have the resources to enforce this and won't be. Our bylaw department right now, 60% of their time is already preoccupied with um, with dealing with uh, COVID issues. They've got important work on property safety issues and standards, uh, animal safety issues. So we're taking them away from their uh, original work. And just today at Regional Council, we learned from our medical officer of health that our public health department is going to be in deficit because of this COVID certification program because the public health inspectors are 
are um, consumed by having to deal with this as well. And so it's one thing to have a program, but there has to be a follow-through on how it's going to be enforced and, and to allocate resources for that. And too often with government programs, it's announced in Ottawa or announced at Queen's Park, but it's put on the back of municipalities. And under the Ontario Municipal Act, we're not allowed to run a deficit. I don't want to run a deficit, but we're not even legally allowed to. And so right now we're looking at public health having a deficit. We're looking at bylaw having a deficit. We're looking at the police if they if they had to allocate resources for this, they'd be in deficit. And so there has this has to be reconciled. I know during the federal election campaign, the prime minister pledged a billion dollars to the provinces for their vaccines certification programs. There's a portion of that's going to have to come to municipalities. They, uh, otherwise, we're simply passing the cost to property taxpayers who already have too much uh, uh, responsibility. Now, back to the enforcement, you know, I was talking to business people earlier and, and you know, the question is, uh, do you have to hire more staff for this? And and their issue is that, hey, um, they 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 can't hire more staff. There are staff shortages. I mean, presumably, if you have the money uh, to do this, can you uh, all of a sudden hire more bylaw officers or more people that you need? Or is that uh, not a go either? So let me answer the, the easier one first. From a policing perspective, it takes a while to train uh, a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that process would take some time. Um, but even if you train them, we're not even keeping up to the more serious issues. We have gun and gang crimes. We've got domestic assaults. You know, there are serious criminal offenses that there's shortages on now. And, and, and even if we got more police officers, I'd want them on those issues rather than than um, than on uh, dealing with a, a COVID uh, certification QR code issue at, at a local restaurant. Um, in terms of bylaw, we did hire 10 additional bylaw officers at the beginning of the pandemic to help us deal with the enforcement of the public health protocols. Um, and we could do that again, um, and, and we could get them trained quickly. But who's paying for that? You know, I, I just find everything goes in your property tax bill. And, you know, municipalities have the smallest budget, uh, and too often everything, you, you know, it just gets passed down. Was there, uh, as far as you know, did it go smoothly last night when it came into effect, or was there trouble in Brampton? I mean, we know there was other trouble in Brampton, but related to the passport. So I, I haven't had my weekly um, update. The anticipation from the from the bylaw department halfway through the day is that there'd be increased uh, workload for 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 bylaw, and I think over the next week we're going to have a, an idea of how big that um, how big that uh, extra work is. But the other commentary I'd make is I, I've heard feedback um, that it's not being enforced um, around uh, Ontario, and so if it's not being enforced then why did we have this giant announcement? And so, you know, if if this is like we're asking the public to do this on their goodwill, then then, then say that. But uh, you know, that that's not what was announced at Queen's Park. You know, they, they said that you can call 911 if there's a compliance issue. I, I think uh, that a lot of people were very surprised to hear that. And and I can tell you our local police were surprised and they told me they would not be responding to these, to these calls. And so there's a disconnect and and I just think that disconnect needs to be reconciled. So, you know, who's who's enforcing it, how it's going to be paid for, what the plan is. Uh, we, we have seen a number from Toronto, $93 million. Do you have a number? Well, I'm going to give the provincial government and the federal government some credit here. Um, they did introduce a safe restart agreement that provided funding to municipalities. Um, that has been helpful for us dealing with our bottom lines on uh, COVID-related losses and things like arts and recreation, um, because you, obviously there's buildings we haven't been unable to 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 rent. Um, right now, you know, we obviously have COVID-related losses too, but it will be within the funding allocated uh, within the Safe Restart Agreement. And uh, again, in Toronto, the main cause of their shortfall are uh, reduced TTC revenues. Yeah, transit, I, so you don't have one. Yeah. So I would imagine you don't have a similar issue. We do, actually. Uh, we, you know, Brampton Transit's the fastest-growing transit system out of the big cities in Canada on a percentage basis. Um, and we have problems because you can't have the same capacity in buses. You know, for a while during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't even having um, uh, front boarding. A, a lot of municipalities uh, obviously adapted to try to protect the, the health and safety of, of operators. So, uh, yeah, we've had significant transit losses. And, and I should add, 
Libby, I've had two, we've lost two transit uh, operators. We've had two transit operators pass away of COVID. And so they they faced a high risk environment. And so we've had to adapt. We've had to protect our, 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 our operators and there's financial losses um, because of that. And, and, um, do you have a specific ask, or uh, are you in the midst of preparing one? So we passed a resolution on our city council asking for the cost of enforcement to be um, covered by this federal provincial funding for vaccine certificates. Uh, in terms of what that cost is going to be, it, it, it really is the level of enforcement the province and the federal government desires. Right now, it's unclear if they want it to be enforced at all. Hmm. Uh, and, and and if there's no money, there's then the enforcement will be uh, minimal. And if there is funds allocated to it, we can staff up uh, based on that funding. And finally, uh, you know, nobody really likes this, but uh, people think this is going to help avoid another lockdown. Or, uh, are you confident? And it's also made a lot of people get vaccinated. Uh, so what about the good side of this or is there one? The good side is there's a lot more vaccinations happening. That's positive. Um, and the reason I believe it's positive is I look at our hospital. You know, we measured June, July earlier, 101 out of 103 uh, hospitalizations were people who were unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Right now in our ICU, when I get the weekly report, it's almost entirely individuals who are unvaccinated. And so um, it, it, it helps. The you know, vaccinations help keep our community safe. They help us get out of this pandemic. And if there are tools that encourage vaccinations, that is that is helpful. Um, and so that that is a silver lining. The more people get vaccinated, the less people are going to be in hospital, and we're not going to see our hospitals overrun. I, when we saw the provincial government issue lockdown orders last year, it, it was, you know, really because they didn't want to see our hospitals overrun. It was about protecting hospital capacity. And so right now, our has, our hospital capacity is pretty good. And so. I don't envision the need for lockdowns. I don't think we need to have more lockdowns, and uh, and you know I'd, I'd advocate against it. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate your input always, Mayor Patrick Brown of Brampton. My pleasure. And that's all the time we have for today, people. Free for all Friday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Free for all Friday is coming up tomorrow. If we did not have time to take your calls, or if there's something else you want to tell us about. Tune in tomorrow. It's your day. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It didn't take long for the knives to come out. Less than 48 hours after the election, a member of the Conservative Party's National Council called for an accelerated review of Aaron O'Toole's leadership. And so far, there are about 1,600 signatures to the online petition that he launched. My petition here is an effort to give the members of the Conservative Party a voice. Conservatives feel betrayed. Conservatives feel lied to by Mr. O'Toole in that he first promised uh, that he would uphold and be a true blue conservative, but he did nothing of the sort in the recent election campaign. He flip-flopped on positions, and the feedback I've heard from uh, from members of our party that I represent and I'm elected to represent as a volunteer counselor is that Mr. O'Toole must be held accountable in a leadership review. Well, on the other side, other party members argue that O'Toole did a good job and that the only way to attain power is to tack to the center. O'Toole himself has repeatedly mentioned the possibility of another election within 18 months, presumably an argument for keeping him in his job. Let me give the numbers out. If you have a comment, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to David Tarrant. He is a conservative strategist and vice president of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. Hi, David. Hey, Libby. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So uh, any surprise that the knives are out so quickly? Uh, listen, after, after any time an election ends in defeat and disappointment, um, I think there's always going to be um, a case where people are, are 
are angry uh, and uh, and uh, want to kind of take out their frustration on whoever the leader of the day is. Um, and and so that, and that part is not surprised. I don't think the way that uh, Mr. Chen has gone about it, uh, you know, mere days after election call, kind of rushing out a public petition, um, reflects well uh, on the party. Uh, at the same time, I want to be clear that that's not a blanket endorsement of, of Mr. O'Toole getting a second chance of this. Uh, Mr. O'Toole has some very serious questions he needs to answer, and the party already has mechanisms that will force him to actually face accountability for the the, the decisions he made and the mistakes he made uh, for for members to judge. So, uh, you know, I would much rather see that process play itself out, which may or may not result in Mr. O'Toole getting a second second uh, chance. But I don't think kind of the, the grandstanding of public petitions uh, does anybody in the Conservative Party any good right now? Well, there was apparently a statement from the National Council saying that Mr. Chen did not consult with them before he unleashed this. Uh, but I have to say, uh, the history of the Conservative Party, uh, you know, seems to indicate that there's always been a fair amount of friendly fire. Yeah, I, I think the history in politics in general is is that when uh, election when leaders uh, disappoint. Uh, compared to what I say, what many members and supporters felt uh, they should have done better going into the campaign, uh, there's going to be friendly fire. I mean, I remember it was not too long ago, Libby, that we saw the Liberals cycle through Stefan Dion and Michael Gnadius, each of whom only got one shot at us before they settled on, uh, on a Trudeau who won. So, I mean, it's not a unique factor to conservatives. Uh, you know, the real issue here is for, for, for that, that kind of complicates things here for conservatives is that clip from Mr. Chen kind of at the beginning showed it was not just a disappointment. It was the the bargain, for want of a better word, that Mr. O'Toole made with so many conservatives, where he basically said, um, I'm going to compromise slash capitulate on a number of issues that are near and dear to many of our members, whether there's a concern of social conservatives, whether it's issues of conservatives who oppose a carbon tax, because this is the way in which we Need you know, this is the only way we can win power and get closer to government, uh, and and members said okay, let's we'll do it your way, uh, and then he went out and he underperformed compared to Andrew Shear. I think that is actually the hardest question that Mr. O'Toole needs to answer, but we don't need a petition right now to answer that. Like there's going to be mechanisms and caucus, and that's the next leadership review at the next conservative convention where he will have to face those questions. So, like I say, this is not a blank endorsement of O'Toole. I just think that there's a responsible way for parties to ask hard questions of the leaders that doesn't require this kind of grandstanding. On the other side of things, there are people saying, well, um, he entered this as a relative unknown, and there was a point where he looked like he was on top. And there are a lot of people saying, you know, the, the country just put in basically the same parliament it had before the you know the the country is basically centrist do you disagree with that well you know i think the fundamental issue here is um many of i don't many of the pundits and the commentators are rallying behind mr o'toole right now i mean to be charitable uh, i doubt they are conservative voters and mr o'toole represents the ideal conservative leader to what a lot of non-conservatives would like the conservative leader to be because he, because he essentially see on every single contentious or controversial issue, be it carbon tax, be it, you know, uh, healthcare, be it social issues, whatever it is, you know, he, he, he made the decision to take it off the table. This is a real stark difference to what happened in 2019 where you had Andrew Scheer, who was off-putting to many centrist Canadians because he was a social conservative. Uh, and, and, and Andrew Scheer kind of had, and, and, and made some, I think, uh, unfortunate decisions in the other direction because I think he disqualified himself from, from some accessible conservative voters. But at the end of the day, uh, despite the fact you had a vulnerable tarnished prime minister from the nature of the election call, uh, the, the fact of the matter is Mr. O'Toole underperformed compared to Mr. Scheer. And so all those people said, oh, it was Mr. Scheer's social conservatism or his opposition to a carbon tax that held him back. Well, you know, these, these, these commentators got what they asked for. They got a conservative leader who tried to take social issues off the table and take a carbon tax off the table, and he did worse. And, and you know, I think the question that Mr. O'Toole needs to answer is, you know, A, 
why, you know, what's he going to change next time around? Because why would he think that more of the same next time around would do any better? And maybe he has a good answer to that question. But uh, for me, uh, I have serious trouble seeing how he can say, um, I'm not going to change anything. Um, the template I use in 2021 is the template that works, and him getting a second shot. He's going to need to show a capacity to learn, to grow, and change. And he has an opportunity, but we're not there yet. And, and a final question, though. Um, in 2019, Andrew Scheer uh, didn't have such a strong People's Party of Canada. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say that that's just because the Conservative Party tacked to the center. That's a whole lot of, you know, anger and frustration and disaffection, uh, you know, that probably has more to do with the pandemic than, than with uh, ideology. Libby, you just asked a million-dollar question. That's a question I've been asking a lot of people ask question, and as people as PDC, because people are either dismissing them or overstating the role. But there's two kind, there's two broad theories about where the PPC draws its supporters from, uh, and it's not it's not one way or It's not like you have to choose. It's a continuum. But one is um, that the right hand side of the conservative blue tent, as Mr. O'Toole was trying to get more kind of moderates or centrists in. He lost votes on his right to the PPC and his effect to conservatives. There's probably some truth to that. Um, There's also some truth to the fact that Maxime Bernier, and people have heard about Maxime Bernier, is he's an opportunistic dilettante, right? Like he's like, you know, there's, 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 there's you know, he will jump on whatever way he thinks and get Maxime Bernier more attention. That he all of a sudden hopped on uh, a, a, an immense anger uh, from a minority of the population who are vehemently opposed to public health measures encouraging vaccines, whether it's mandates, whether it's vaccine passports, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, these people are these people have a deleterious impact. They are not helpful. They, are, they, they, they will cost people lives. But they exist and they are real. And the People's Party was the only party who gave them a, a voice and a vehicle. If you, if you subscribe to the theory that those people are the core of the PPC vote, well, then this is a moment in time. And the PPC will mercifully fade to irrelevance in time for the next election campaign. We hope. But at least some of them are probably lapsed conservatives. And the degree to which their support is lapsed conservatives is going to be a really important question for, for Mr. O'Toole and other conservatives to answer in the months ahead. Okay. Uh, that's a lot to think about and uh, a very interesting take on it. David Tarrant, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again very soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Libby. Bye-bye. We've got to take another break. When we come back, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good noon and welcome. It's day two of the vaccine passport taking effect here in Ontario. So we'd like to check in and see how the initial rollout went. Many business owners had lots of worries going in. How to handle angry customers who would be denied access. Would they be responsible if they let fraudulent certificates get through? And would they need extra staff to handle all of this when so many are already facing staff shortages? On top of everything, there were lineups and glitches for people who waited until yesterday to download their documents. One of our colleagues here was actually, if you can believe it, 40,000th in line to get through on the computer. So we'd like to hear from you. Uh, what do you think? Have you had any experience of this and how did it go? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs, Daniel Safayani, vice president of policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and Jim Solomon, owner founder and CEO of Hone Fitness in Toronto. Welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Let us begin with Larry. How did it go last night? 
Uh, Libby, I would suggest the word would be frustrating, I think would be the words. I think uh, restaurants were notified late in the program of how this is going to work. And the fact that the certification has come out earlier than the app has been a huge challenge for us. We are being put in a position at our front doors with young hostesses who don't understand necessarily everything about vaccinations and are being challenged by numbers of guests who are asking to get in and, and don't have the right documentation. We've Did, got customers coming in from other parts of the country with different certification as well. Very challenging. Did you have any trouble? Uh, I, I don't want to say trouble, but we've had some guests that we've asked to leave and there's been frustration. And look, let's be honest about it. The hospitality industry has been decimated now for 19 months, as well as gyms and other small businesses. And once again, we're not being able to use our word hospitality. We have become the triage for COVID-19. You have to ask people to put on masks, move six feet apart, sit away, give me your name. Where are you vaccinated? How are you supposed to say to people, hey, welcome, how are you doing? Come in and have a drink and something to eat. It's hurting the business. It shouldn't be put on the small business to manage this program. Okay. Speaking of gyms, let us go to Jim Solomon. How is it going for you? Well, let me start by saying Larry's right. Uh, You know, this whatever it's been, 16, 19 months has been really hard on the gym business, I think, in, in Ontario, included Hone Fitness. Uh, the stops and the starts and the masks and the everything has uh, turned people off. They've canceled. They've suspended their memberships. So, you know, in a big picture, uh, he's completely... Right. I don't think Hone's alone in in that trend. I think it's North American gyms. Uh, With that said, your question was yesterday. uh, We were pretty well prepared. We're a little lucky compared to, I think, a restaurant where the member already has their picture, their first, their last name, their address, their cell phone, and their email address in our system. So when they come uh, yesterday with the documentation, we, we check it and it's a little easier and uh, we don't store it. We take a new picture, uh, of, of the fact that we check. So, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. There were people, you know, not realizing that yesterday they had a showed it and then they, you know, had to move back or outside and find it on their phone. And there are people who didn't have it on their phone. Uh, but, we only in the seven gyms had one customer who was uh, unruly. Unruly? How? I mean, what, what, did it get physical just or was it yelling, yelling? Yelling about just, you know, most of the people are just frustrated at all of this and taking it out when they're, you know, entering hone on hone, right? Yeah. Uh, so just mad, you know, yelling mad. And, uh, you know, we can't stand for that so you know that that individual is asked to leave and we actually canceled the membership but uh that's the only one that stood out yesterday but i I think it's frustration and anger at uh, honestly the government yeah (laughs) and and, uh and the world i i would guess um yeah did you do you have uh security i'm assuming that at a gym there might be some people there who we, are uh, we did pretty not able. Higher outside security yesterday. We have two to three people in the gym at the busy times, and we station them in the front, uh, you know, checking all everybody because we get busy at around five thirty, right? It wasn't. It was very manageable until then. And it was rainy yesterday, yeah. so we probably had a little less people show up. But uh, we 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 station people you know, way ahead of time to be there. Uh, so we had three people there and it was well-staffed when at 5.30. Daniel Safayani, first of all, am I pronouncing your last name right? You're doing a great job, Libby. Okay, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so the, the business community and uh, organizations like yours have been asking for the vaccine passport, not because anybody likes all this, but because uh, m- most sort of see it as the only way to avoid another lockdown, which would be even worse. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Look, uh, 
no business wants to be the cop here or uh, be in a situation, um, uh, as Larry just alluded to, in which they potentially have to turn away customers. Uh, but at the same time, no business wants to be shut down again. And uh, we know this is one of the tools that we have on the table to prevent that. And so, you know, it is still very early days uh, in the implementation of this. Uh, and Libby, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, many of our members are still looking for additional guidance as it relates to uh, implementation, uh, enforcement, uh, financial support uh, for hiring uh, additional staff to successfully be being able to implement it. Uh, but it's also worth uh, remembering that uh, the VAX passport is already generating enormous positive dividends for Ontario. We here in Ontario, along with Quebec and BC, have meaningfully higher vaccination rates than those that have resisted, namely Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, and, and just since our passport system was announced uh, at the beginning of September, nearly 300,000 Ontarians have rolled up their sleeves to go and get their first jab. Uh, Larry Isaacs, um, that is the other side of that. And I know there are lots of people, and I would say myself included, uh, who weren't keen to say go inside in a restaurant until this, uh, this was put into effect. So uh, isn't there a positive bump as well? Absolutely. But here's the challenge, Libby. One of the things that wasn't laid out was why were the staff not then forced to get vaccinated? <laughs> Good why? question. That's left again to the small business. You know, the government's got to step up here and say, look, if you're in a place where you cannot put on a mask, everybody in that space needs to have the vaccine. I'm not in charge of the vaccine program. I don't speak for it or against it. The bottom line, what we speak for, I say it again, we've been closed for 19 months. We have to get back to life. Businesses, the downtown in the pathway is like a morgue. There's no people. 19 months into a pandemic, how are people going to survive? The country cannot survive on government handouts forever. We need small businesses to reopen and employ people and get back to business. So the government needs to figure out the right way to make that happen make that happen and make it happen soon. Yeah, I, I mean, there are a lot of people who are kind of shaking their heads. It makes no sense to say uh, that it's up to the business to see that their their staff are vaccinated, but your customers have to be. And it makes even less sense to say you need a vaccine passport to go out to dinner. But but hey, if you're unvaccinated, you can work with frail elder people in a long term care home, you know. <laughs> no, no sense no sense at all. And this is why we said the opportunity when the government brought this out. Firstly, the wrong time to launch this is in the middle of an election. That didn't make any sense. Secondly, the app hasn't been ready. Thirdly, why didn't we make this a national program so people flying on business have all got the same documents and put it on the health card? We don't need to know any of the information, any of the, the medical information. All it is is a yes or no if you've been vaccinated. Make life simple. Don't complicate things. Uh, Daniel Safayani, uh, do you do you do you feel uh, that there's a problem that this came into effect before the app is ready? Uh, even though you know, if we want to prevent spread, this is the time. Yeah, I, I mean, look. Uh, it, in our view, it's best to have something imperfect in place rather than nothing. Uh, it, are we late to the scene? Yes, absolutely. Should some of this have been thought about in advance in terms of the, the, you know, the difficulty of implementing a paper-based system and then introducing a QR code and what that means for frontline staff that have to verify and enforce this. Um, absolutely. But I also want to pick up on something else that Larry said, which is this big gap that remains around uh, no guidance or regulations for workplace vaccination policies for employees. And uh, we are concerned at the chamber that a lack of clearer guidance there is going to, again, disproportionately impact small businesses and lead to a, a patchwork of inconsistency, uh, inconsistent policies across the pr province. But encouragingly here, yesterday we heard uh, from the Ontario Human Rights Commission, they released a policy statement um, in which they pretty clearly said that uh, mandating and requiring proof of vaccination to protect people at work when receiving services is generally permiss permissible under the Human Rights Code um, as long as protections are put in place to accommodate those that can't. And so we'd like to see the government 
move on that and uh, provide some actual legislative clarity for businesses. Uh, yeah, it, it, again, and, uh, we just heard even, even in the healthcare sector, it's up to the individual healthcare, uh, the hospital or whatever. And we just heard that, uh, a, a lot of people at the hospital in Windsor have been, uh, put on leave without pay and they will be terminated if they don't get their vaccination in the next two weeks. But again, you know, the, a lot of people are questioning, wouldn't it have been better if the government just said that, as opposed to having a, a one-off policy? Um, Jim Solomon, are, uh, did you or do you still have worries about getting sued? Uh, should you uh, demand that your workers uh, get vaccinated? Uh, well, I followed. Uh, first of all, I agree that it, it makes no sense that I have 18,000 members I'm forcing to, you know, I'm not letting in my gyms unless they're double vaccinated. Yet, uh, you know, the law doesn't state that I can for, you know, that, that an employee can do it. Now I'm, I don't think I have much of an issue. I have a very young group of staff and I'm pretty sure, well, I've, we've talked, I'm almost a hundred percent. So I'm not sure it's, uh, I'm too exposed. However, it doesn't make sense that you're telling 18,000 people you got to be double vaxxed, you can't come in, and you're not saying that to your staff. It doesn't make sense. Now, my staff is in masks 100% of the time, but it doesn't make sense. But I'm not. I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't told them if you're not vaxxed, you're out. I have not said that at this stage. Uh, and it'd be nice for the government to say, look, you got the employees got to do it, too. And we're, you know, we're backing you. Larry, how do you feel about that? Have you uh, instituted any kind of vaccination policy for your staff? We have put a policy out now that everybody has to be vaccinated. But but I'll go back to my point. If you look at some of the government departments, they've issued notices to 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 their employees in government departments all over Ontario that they have, have to be vaccinated. So why make me the bad guy again? Why make small business who are challenged with so many other issues right now manage the situation? It's simplistic. If this is what you believe is going to stop the, the virus, then get it done. Stand up and take responsibility. Stop passing the buck. It's unnecessary. Uh, Daniel Safayani, so the the Ontario Human Rights uh, Tribunal has come out with that statement that gives people some shade. Uh, are you confident that businesses that move forward with this uh, won't get sued or uh, won't have successful suits against them, uh, you know, just regular employment suits? Daniel? Daniel, are you there? Sorry, I, I just muted myself while I was coughing. Um, mm. But uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, Libby, so I'm not in a position to, to really be able to answer that question. But, you know, what, what I can say and what, what Jim and Larry are alluding to here as well is that, you know, certainly a lack of government guidance here is going to put this burden on individual businesses to create, implement, and enforce their own rules. That's obviously going to disproportionately hurt small businesses. And, you know, the legal, uh, the legal question will remain um, until the government steps in, uh, in in more of a, uh, a heavy-handed way here and provides some regulatory or legislative clarity. Uh, are you at all confident that will happen? I mean, what seems to be the case, certainly here in Ontario, is that eventually uh, they come around to these things, but it's usually pretty late. I mean, I can't speak for the government, but what I can say is that, you know, we are talking with them every day about these issues and, uh, you know, the questions that have been raised around uh, implementation, enforcement, verification. Um, yeah, we are we are seeking answers for that. And, you know, the chamber is going to continue to advocate for any additional supports and guidance that will be needed to effectively implement the system. And, and Libby, just one point on this quickly um, is that uh, if you'll recall, the federal government, before we went into uh, an election, promised, uh, I believe it was $1 billion to provinces to help with the implementation of a vaccine passport system. So 
you know, now that the election is over and that we are implementing a system, we'd like to see that uh, money be used expeditiously to help uh, small businesses who are already uh, over-levered in terms of uh, cash flow constraints to be able to uh, effectively implement this. Um, we'll get to that in a minute, and I'm laughing because I'm thinking, gee, maybe you'll get that money before the next election. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I'd like to give the numbers out again, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Uh, I'd like to hear from the audience. What do you think of all of this? Um, are you annoyed that you're going to have to show uh, your vaccine passport to get into places? Or on the other side, are you more comfortable going inside? And judging by the weather, we're going to have to go inside real soon. Uh, going inside now that you know that everyone else inside is vaccinated. So uh, I'd like to know on both sides of the ledger. But in the meantime, let, let's talk about the money. Larry Isaac, so what kind of extra costs are you incurring? Are you getting security or anything like that? Yeah, well, the challenge, firstly, Libby, is that there's no staff to get right now. You cannot find employees to do the regular jobs that we need. They, the labor uh, cost is being pushed up while we're waiting to find the labor force to get back in. So we want to get more staff to manage this efficiently, but we don't have the ability to get them. And then the cost related, we don't even understand yet what the QR reader looks like or where do we put it? How do we, you know, it's embarrassing for us as a business. We're the front line that face all these people. And we know that there's frustration from everybody, but we don't know yet what the QR reader is going to look like, the cost around it, and where we can find labor to get this done. So it is challenging right now. Is a QR reader a complicated thing? I thought it's like phone to phone. Uh, do uh, Jim or Daniel? Do you do you uh, know that? Well, it's been no, out. Larry's right. We we don't know, you know, what this QR looks like, and I have a feeling you can't read it uh, with the equipment we have in our gyms right now. I have a feeling. I don't know. He's right, though. I have no idea. Uh, Daniel, do you have any idea? Uh, it's it's been di done differently in different provinces. Uh, there's some reporting that indicates that this uh, the app is only going to apply to employers. So unlike Quebec, um, uh, people can't download this. There will just be a QR code um, on the vaccine receipt that you already have. And so, yeah, we need we need these details and clarity to provide uh, provided about this as soon as possible, so that businesses can effectively uh, prepare uh, to be able to implement this. One point um, on the staffing shortages, there's, there's a number of reasons contributing to this. But, um, you know, one of them we also hope is, you know, some folks are, are hesitant to return to uh, a place of business that they aren't guaranteed if everyone around them is vaccinated and that they will be safe. And so we hope that um, things like vaccine mandates for uh, employees and uh, vaccine passports could actually encourage folks to return to the workforce who previously might have been hesitant because of the public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the CERB is being cut back, that'll do it as well, I would think. Let us go to the phones. We've got Janet and Ajax. Hello, Janet. Hi, how are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on yeah, the air. Um we were in uh, Denny's restaurant in Niagara Falls yesterday, went there for lunch, and I took my phone out to show my vaccine. They said, no, we don't have to do that. And I said, yes, it's the law. No, my boss says we don't have to. Really? And w that was on the Canadian side? Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. She, and, I, and I asked her again, I said, why does your boss think he doesn't have to? I don't know. I just do my job. Hmm. That I, is... I'm shocked. That is very interesting. Uh, and if some authorities are listening in, uh, that's, so. <laughs> um, yeah. And did you, did you feel less comfortable about going inside because of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we um, asked to be seated in a little alcove away from everywhere else. Um, but they, the server kept in, and then finally she kind of got a bit nasty saying, I'm just doing my job. There you I, go. Yeah, she um, she was presumably. Yeah, yeah. I, I was shocked. Really uh, shocked. Yep. Well, I, go ahead. I, I tried calling. Of course, Denny's is the U.S. Right, so they're based in the U.S. So I didn't get anywhere there. 
oh, well, that maybe that's why. But yeah, they, they figure that they don't have to, even though they're in Canada. So, But anyway, that was, uh, and we went out in the evening and we had no problem. It took less than a minute to show our ID and our uh, vaccine photo. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Janet, for that. Nope. Uh, Daniel, do you have any comment about that? That's pretty interesting. I I mean, no comment on that uh, specific situation. Uh, Look, there's there's always going to be resistance from some. Um, But, you know, we've also heard from a number of our members and sectors that haven't been included in the vaccine passport policy actually wanting to be included so that they can ensure the the safety of their place of business uh, while mitigating the potential backlash uh, from the public as well. And um, uh, so, you know, I mean, that is uh, the other side of this. You know, what we're urging, uh, as I believe the premier said yesterday as well, uh, it's important that everyone remain patient uh, with business owners who are trying to uh, implement this and do the best that they can under uh, difficult uh, circumstances. Yeah, I, I guess what the caller is saying that she doesn't want people to remain patient with uh, business owners who are not implementing it. But anyway, there you go. Uh, let's hear from Jeff in Port Perry. Hello, Jeff. Jeff, hi. hi. You're hi. on the air. I'm in, I'm in a rural area, so I hope I don't break up. But just very quickly, I totally support the vaccine passport. I have been double vaccinated. I'm a senior and I care about my family, my friends, and just want to do my part to support it. I do have a question, which I was listening to the discussion about whether or not staff had to be double vaccinated. And my question is, um, if anybody who enters a facility, non-essential facility, has to be double vaccinated, why don't the staff intuitively fall into that category? Why are they being considered separately from that? Uh, that's a good question, and uh, we would like to ask that of the government. Uh, I don't even know what their rationale for that is. Daniel, I'm looking to you again. Do we know what the rationale even is here? Um no, we don't. I don't. We don't have a clear sense of that. Uh, I mean, there are some uh, regulatory uh, uh, explanations here in terms of different acts that uh, uh, effectively um, oversee, um, you know, what you could do in, in terms of employees uh, versus that of customers entering the establishment. Uh, but look, on face value, this uh, this is a huge discrepancy. It does need to be addressed. Hmm. Okay, Jeff. Uh, uh, sorry, we can't answer your question. Ask your MPP. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye okay, bye bye, Jerry in Scarborough. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Gibby. I have Mike. It's similar. I didn't hear the, all of what the former person was talking about, but I drive truck, and I'm going into factories and places where the people inside are not wearing masks, but I have to wear a mask to go through the door, otherwise I can't get into the building. And now with, I have to show proof of my, being vaccinated, which I am. Uh, what about the people I'm confronting inside that i got to deal with? Who's regulating the employees inside where I, people like myself have to go in and be confronted by somebody not wearing a mask, and I have to wear a mask? Yeah. Somewhere along the line, the logistics just don't seem to balance. Uh, I th- I think we would all agree with that, though. The the vaccine passport, as far as I know, doesn't apply to uh, factories and doesn't doesn't apply to retail businesses. No, it doesn't even apply to like Tim Hortons. I go in there. If I go into the uh, the uh, counter and take out, I don't have to do that. But if I'm going to sit on a chair, I got to show it. And I don't understand. I'm in the same room, breathing the same air. What? Why do I have to show it if I'm going to sit down and not if I'm at the counter? And I'm it, still confronting the same people. And and if you're at a Tim Hortons, chances are you'll be waiting a few minutes in a long line. Jerry, right. we all have the same questions. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I mentioned once before what we got to do is just renew our health cards, put that, that code on the thing there. You want to know what thing there? Look at my health card. It's got my picture on it, everything else on it. The government's got all that information on file. All they got to do is issue out a new health card, and 
the problem is solved. Okay, Jerry, thanks for that. Take care. Uh, Libby, if I, if I might here, there, there is a small distinction to, to be made here, which is that, um, you know, if you're dining in, you're, you've taken your mask off, you're sitting for a prolonged period of time. If you're just doing takeout, uh, you can keep your mask on, you uh, pick up your order, and then you head out the door. Um, it, it is worth noting that, you know, this, this policy right now is focused on non-essential, higher-risk, indoor settings in which, you know, typically masking is not possible, for instance, like a, like a gym or like a restaurant. Um, it is important that we don't restrict any essential services uh, to those who are not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I know there are a lot of people who think their Timmy's is an essential service. <laughs> uh, uh, we're we're uh, out of time. I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds, starting with Jim Solomon. Hi, Jim. What would you like to leave us with? Uh, I've listened. Uh, I think there are there is a lot of confusion and inequity, uh, but we're you know, as speaking for how we're going to follow what's been laid out. Uh, I think initially it's been uh, controversial. We've had a number of people who want to freeze their memberships. Uh, and they've made the, themselves vocal. Uh, I'm hoping we, we said this, that it helps us as it gets cold and builds confidence in Toronto that a gym is uh, a good spot, good place, okay place to be this winter. Okay, uh, Larry Isaacs. Hey, Libby, I just want to say this. Look, it's been a long time for businesses to try and get themselves back on the feet. And every time there's an opportunity that maybe we can get ourselves going, something knocks us back again. It's time for the government to step up, take responsibility, make sure this makes sense for the public and not leave it to small businesses to manage the government's problems. And Daniel, last word to you. I certainly agree uh, with what Jim and Leary had said, but it's, you know, there's going to be a learning curve. There will be bumps along the way. Uh, but it's important to remember, you know, other jurisdictions have introduced this. They're seeing results, many using vaccine passports as a way to actually loosen some public health restrictions and, and increase capacity limits for, for indoor dining or concerts or sporting events. And I think it's worth remembering that we all want to get back to normal uh, without another province-wide shutdown. Proof of immunization, clarity on workplace policies, rapid testing, all these things can help us regain our rights and freedoms while mitigating against the risk of another uh, shutdown, which businesses simply can't afford. Okay, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you, Jim Solomon, Larry Isaacs, and Daniel Safayani. Thanks. And we are going to take a break. And when we come back, the knives are out for Aaron O'Toole. Uh, We will drill down into that when we return on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.